Hello, bonjour, ni hao. Como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. Anyone can talk about and draft strategy, but execution is increasingly where the battle is won. Connecting these phases is very challenging and those who do it well will be at the top of their game. These people move in very tight circles and they'll have battle scars to show, skin in the game and money in play. Learning from their practical wisdom is priceless. So it's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. Some of the first forms of recorded advertising was the SPQR insignia that Roman soldiers displayed on the standards they carried into battle. Similar inscriptions are, to this day, still visible on the tops of manholes around Rome. And signage and other forms of outdoor advertising are the original form of advertising. And this is something Charmaine knows lots about, as we initially talk about the history of signage that goes back millennia. She's the CEO of two organizations. She's the CEO of the Outdoor Media Association and CEO in an audience measurement tech company called Move. And Charmaine has just had to endure perhaps the most challenging period in her professional career in this industry. As you can imagine, it was a hard sell convincing advertisers to advertise outdoor when everyone was locked inside, especially as she was advocating a local industry that accounts for over $1 billion in annual spend. But prior to that, she's fulfilled senior roles within the arts industry and many other organizations. So what is outdoor advertising? Which outdoor medium is particularly good at targeting time-poor C-suite execs? And what are ghost signs? Why did a Scotsman crowdfund an outdoor campaign targeting a visiting head of state? We discuss everything from what she thinks of depictions in Minority Report and Blade Runner 2020, through to neuroscience, measurement methodologies, and even erectile dysfunction. What is LTS in the world of outdoor? What is the critical difference between outdoor and other ad mediums, which was recently revealed by groundbreaking neuroscience research? And how did Spotify manage to crush Pandora in Australia using outdoor? So today you can gain a crash course into the world of outdoor advertising in all of its largesse. So if you don't learn something from this episode, you haven't been listening. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Charmaine Moldrich. Welcome to the show, Charmaine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. A kind of hyperventilating, actually, to be perfectly honest. Why? What's happening? So much to do before the end of the year. So I'm glad to stop and drink a glass of champagne with very you. Very nice. Yeah, it's a bit of that sort of crazy end of the year. It's like everyone trying to get their projects done. Uh, yeah, tell me about the champagne. Why did you pick it? Uh, I know we're, we're going for Dom Perignon, but we decided on maybe a, a cheaper uh, version today. <laughs> tell me about this one. Well, let me, let me tell you my Dom story because I, I kind of like it, but we're where we've come down a notch by a few hundred dollars <laughs> to to drinking Pomeroy. Is it Pomeroy? What what yeah, are we drinking? Pomeroy. 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 Yeah. Uh, we've got someone French speaking in our office. I should have asked them. So my Dom story is that um, I was at one of my members' offices on the day that I turned 60, which was a couple of years ago. 
and he had just won the Melbourne Cup, as in his horse had just won the Melbourne Cup. And he asked me how I was, and I said, I'm really well. I just turned 60 today. And he went to a crate in his room, in his office, a wooden crate, and it was filled with bottles of Dom. And he gave me a bottle of Dom, and I'd never drunk Dom Perignon before. Um, And, you know, I felt so special. Um, And I went into my hotel room and I I put it on ice because I was having dinner. So I was also interstate. So I was going to have dinner with some really, really, really long-term friends of mine who were cooking me dinner in Melbourne. And I took the bottle there and they were really impressed that I was willing to share it with them. And after drinking it, and we all went, oh, yeah, you know, it tastes really good and, you know, the bubbles are small. And they had the proper kind of, you know, Marie Antoinette glasses with the hollow. It was all very beautiful. But we weren't like, oh, this is amazing champagne. It was it was really, really nice. But we realised that after we'd finished drinking it that we'd actually been high. We'd got a kick out of it. Because for that one hour that we had two glasses each, we were just like hilariously laughing, like old friends catching up, but telling these wild stories and just laughing our heads off. And then the second bottle that we had was Verve Clicquot. And when we drank that, we went, oh, that was an amazing bottle of champagne. And it's true, you get a kick out of champagne. I'd never had that before. With two glasses. I, th- I think it's maybe the, the bubbles that sort of, there is a bit of science in this, the bubbles in your stomach, it does uh, tra- uh, expand your stomach tiny bit and the alcohol goes into your bloodstream a bit quicker. But I think it's that and then the, the context as well that sort of puts you in a different place. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was just wonderful. So that's my, I turned 60, I drank Dom with my friends and got high. <laughs> I think it's about like retailing. I mean, I just checked the other day because we were going to get one and then I was like, oh, it's actually $300. And then there seems to be a shortage right now of the really high premium ones, yes. um, I've noticed. So yes. only one retailer had one. So, well, I'm going to open this so we can get the pop. Okay. I've already opened mine and I've even had a ooh, sip ooh, cheeky. out of it. Jumping the gun, that's okay. Um, so some fast facts about this one. It belongs to Franken. I'll just show you the, uh, the bottle here. Uh, it belongs to Franken. And it comes in this really lovely box. Yeah, it's probably one of the only ones that has blue as well. So it's distinctive. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's kind of Yves Klein blue, right? And I like the cage, how they got on the blue wire as well. It looks um, very nice. So. Nice detail. Yes. We like okay, a bit of ready? detail in our foam. Oh, oh I love that sound. Look at that smoke. It's pretty nice. Uh, I have a little tasting glass here, so um, no fancy ones today. Oh, look at you. You're, you're, you're a proper professional. Well, I normally have my, my properly filmed Jemesse glasses, which are the tulip glasses, which are the, if you really want to get you know, professional, that's what they have. Um, but unfortunately, uh, I don't have that at the office right now. So yeah, anyway, let's, let's cheers. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank cheers. you. Cheers. Madame Pomery, who uh, took over from mm-hmm. her husband in 1858, I think it was, she was actually the first introduced uh, dry style champagne of which this is the um the original um before that it was very very sweet i'm talking um and I, you know i'm not sure if you're aware of dosage but it's how much extra sugar they put back in the bottle before they they cage it um to balance out the sweet and dryness but um we are at about eight grams per liter now or five to eight uh normally for a brute champagne 
and um, back in the day, it was like um, it's like a hundred or something crazy. Yeah, no. it was really, really sweet. Uh, wow. Well, that's a good fact, and that it was a woman. I'm really pleased about the woman. Yeah, yeah. She was um, a bit of a pioneer, similar to Verve Klinko. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, very industrious with uh, forming connections with different people and influences back in the day, which was the aristocracy of different European states. But, um, you know, that's how business grows. And I suppose that's a good segue into, you know, what you do <laughs> and using a particular medium to grow businesses. So if you just want to introduce yourself and exactly what you do, then we'll, we'll get into some, some nitty gritty questions. What do you think? Okay. So my name is Charmaine Moldridge. I am the CEO of two companies. Uh, a, a little known fact that I manage two companies. One is the Outdoor Media Association, which is the peak industry body for uh, the out-of-home advertising industry in Australia. And we're pretty close to 100%. So we, we this year we've managed to reach that lofty height of having 100% of the, the larger businesses in in the OMA. So yeah, thank you. It's, it's a, it's something worth celebrating. Um, And I also am the CEO of a company called Move, which is a a shareholder company that produces our audience measurement system. Um, So I, there is a Chinese wall between the two. um, But I, I am the CEO of both of those companies. I have to say move more in kind of the governance end because I have some really amazing team members who do all of the the nerdy, brainy stuff and I just boss them around a little bit. <laughs> you're not supposed to admit to that. <laughs> but that's good. And, and that's why I wanted to talk to you because you, you're not just over the execution or the high level, but you're also very much involved in the measurement end, which is, you know, closing that feedback loop on effectiveness. So um, that's going to be very interesting if you can talk about both. Yep, I can talk about both. Okay, so first question is, uh, what is outdoor marketing or outdoor advertising? So outdoor advertising is what you see outside the home. So any ad that you see outside the home, we've, we've got some caveats on it. So we... Um, we, we, in our association, are members who put something on a fixed frame. So those scooters that you see or those trailers at the end of a road, we don't, we don't look after them or, you know, helicopter signs or signs in the air, we don't, we don't look after. But anything on a fixed frame, so billboards, bus shelters, shopping centre panels, airport advertising, bus backs, insides of buses, trains, train concourses, insides of trains, ferries, um, lifts, gyms, cafe screens, all of that is managed by one of our members who belong to our industry body. So the OMA provides its members with four thing. One of them is audience measurement, which takes me to move. The second thing is kind of talking about doing things like this, John, talking about the the channel. So talking about why you would choose out of home over radio or why you would choose out of home over a banner ad on, on the internet. 
So we, we really push the channel. We don't tend to push the formats within the channel because, as you can see, we've got a lot of formats. The third thing that we do that not a lot of people know is we work in the area of government relations, and that's actually a large part of my job. And then we also do kind of member relations where we have we look after financial records, you know, so we report the industry as a whole, esprit de corps, thought leadership, awards, all of those things that are important in a membership body. So so that's what the OMA does for all outdoor advertisers, and I can say all. Uh, in Australia. Well, that's that's huge. I think I've be, I've read some of the research or the data that you've put because I'm on some investment uh, bank uh, reports about some of the companies I cover, like OOH being one of them, and a few others. And you know, sometimes they'll have SMI data for the other advertising areas, and that will flow through to to some of those reports. So that's that's great. So what yeah. about? I was looking at Fernando Machado, ex Burger King CMO, now works at Blizzard, which is a gaming company, and he did like a big mural in Berlin on on a wall so with things like that sort of be in that gray area or what doesn't uh, outdoor advertising include well it depends on where how that mural was put together so it could be street art street art isn't outdoor advertising but i i know so in sydney there is a wall in surrey hills where someone paints ads on them so if if the if the message is advertising and it's done through one of our members. So our members do use street art because it's a legitimate form of advertising and actually it's where it started, right? Mm-hmm. So so kind of the evolution has gone from Pompeii where, you know, we, we see those signs. I've seen them. I've been to Pompeii and I've seen them, you know, where you could, you could walk into a, a brothel and see what the ladies had in store for you. Um, to, you know, people putting stones on hills with a man with a big mallet saying, don't come here, we'll, we'll kill you and we're giants. You know, so we've been using signs for as long as people have been in caves blowing their fingerprint on drawing the mammoth um, with their with o- okra. You know, we come from one of the oldest cultures that have been doing it for 60,000 years. So, you know, we know science really well um, and they've evolved now to being digital, but they started off being painted. And I don't know whether you know about this whole movement called ghost signs. No, but I mean... You did remind me about Pompeii. I remember reading um, Roman history and they'd had political ads. So like um, one politician yeah. would blag off the other one and they would send all this like um, this graffiti art around and it would change the yeah. discourse. Or, But yeah, tell me about what are these Absolutely. ghost signs? This sounds interesting. Ghost signs. In fact, there is someone in Melbourne who's written a book about this. And ghost signs are, you know, when they, when they upgrade a building, uh, a historic building, and they pull down a wall, you know, so... It's a 19th century building and someone's put in a 20th century facade on it and they're taking away the 20th century facade and what they find is the sign underneath, you know, for Arnott's Biscuits or for Schweppes or um, for for something very Australian like for golfing carts or um, and they're called ghost signs because they have been ghosted by the new facade and then they get covered up again. You know, someone documents them and then they're covered up again. 
That's really cool. So one question I had was like, uh, obviously during COVID, um, there was a bit of change in the way we transport ourselves uh, for an extended period of time. How did that affect the industry? And did you see a change in media buying because of that? I know some some of the big outdoor sort of media companies were in a bit of turmoil at one stage. What, what do you see happening there? I would be lying if I said that COVID didn't affect us. It affected us very, very dramatically, especially in the first wave. Um, and in May and June last year, it was dreadful. Um, before there was any vaccine, we didn't know what was going on. And I think, you know, outdoor is one of those um, one of those channels that is really affected by changes. So I saw something similar in the GFC. Um, but the good thing about it uh, is that we go down and we go up really fast and that's what that's what happened but we lost uh i think 395 million dollars last year you know we were down we were down quite a bit um we and and to some extent i think that advertisers did the wrong thing but i would say that right um but the reason why I say that is not just spinning, but I think what happened was audiences didn't disappear. They just became hyper-local. So I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time wandering my neighbourhood, wandering to my neighbourhood parks, not driving to my neighbourhood park, but walking to my neighbourhood park. You know, I'd put my headphones on and make my phone calls and walk to the park. Um so I think what happened was audiences became hyper-local. Um, I saw buses still kept their schedule. You know, buses didn't stop running, trains didn't stop running. So there were like these huge moving billboards with no clutter that is usually there to stop them. So, you know, there were a lot of opportunities if you were a brand to, to think about this in a particular way. But people are creatures of habit. You know, we sell in terms of how many eyeballs you see, you know, that's what MOVE does. And we don't have, as yet, we're building this granular data where we can actually say, actually, people are hyper-local because we use uh, a model to work out our audience measurements. So we weren't nimble enough to, to kind of hop onto that hyper-local thing. And I think we were all a bit shell-shocked. You know, it took us a while to kind of go, hey, what's happening here? And it took advertisers a while to go, what's happening here? Well, it's not something you really plan for, is it, a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic? Like, it's uh, in the contingency planning of, of at a board level, it's not something you really have factored No, I, I was talking to one of our, um, our members who said, great, that we've got a risk management plan. We didn't risk manage a hundred, you know, we didn't risk manage us being disrupted by us losing our audience, but we didn't lose our audience. Yes, it diminished, but, you know, some people were winners. So um, definitely uh, our members in regional Australia did better than they did the previous year. Definitely our retail members did better than they did the previous year. Um, the, the obvious ones were airports, you know, which, which is premium inventory. Um, they didn't do at anything at all and public transport. And I think public transport was a missed opportunity for advertisers. Every time I drove, um, down the street or I walked to the city, I'd go look at that tram with a great ad on it. You know, why is that ad for Hamilton? It should be for something 
now. The government should have that tram saying, if you want to be on this tram, get vaccinated now. Or, or KFC, <laughs> you know, ordered at your home or, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah, some of those people did some really great ads. Menulog did some really great advertising during the lockdown um, where they used the food to say, you know, this is this. These are how many sushi rolls you need to be one point five meters apart. This is how many pizzas. You know, people people did use it well. Sorry, I really like the uh, the format, and I think you know it's misunderstood uh, a lot. Like everyone sort of shifted to digital as a as a knee jerk reaction. Perhaps didn't look at some of the opportunities that arose. So I think you raised some really good points there. Um, just on that sort of theme, though, like um, I think it's a bit of a black box. Uh, how do ads actually get on these areas that we're talking about? You know, do you go through your agency and and how far do you have to book? How much does it cost? There's a lot of questions that people always ask me. Um, I used to work in ad agency, so I sort of know because <laughs> I was looking at the invoices and had to arrange prints and things like that. But maybe just for everyone else, like are there any sort of famous landmarks or billboards that you go, okay, that costs at least this and this is how the process works. Just demystify some of that process. Yeah, I can't demystify costs, unfortunately, because I don't have a commercial remit, uh, which is fair enough um, because, you know, members charge according to supply and demand. But I suppose um, what I can say is something like the silos or um, the 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 one on Federation Square, the billboard, the electronic billboard on the on the corner of um, what's that building called? Uh, Young and Jackson. Yep. Uh, you know they're premium yes. sites, and they're booked way in advance. So you know people people kind of get it right. They get what what they want. So you used to need to book when. So I used to book out of home. When I, I worked in the arts and for government, I used to book out of home. And you used to have to book it, you know, a month or two in advance because it took so long to print um, the poster. And now you do most of it on digital and you used to print it on paper. Like, I'm that old. Oh, no, I was that I was there too. I mean, maybe I didn't look old, but um, I had to arrange it through MMT printing and it was like, you know, a grand or two yes, and yes. large format. I had to make sure the res was yeah. 10% at 300 DPI. So it was like really, really high yeah. res. So what mostly, most of our business comes through media agencies, but we have probably 10% of our business overall comes through direct. So, you know, you can be... A, you know, like the guy recently who booked all of those billboards in Glasgow, who did the GoFundMe campaign to get the messages to Scott Morrison about climate change. You know, he just he just had a GoFundMe page and he had a great campaign and then rang up the agent, uh, rang up the billboard companies in the UK and booked them directly. So there's there, there are two, three ways, I suppose, you can do it. You can be an individual who wants to book something. Uh, you can be a company that has a set of small news agencies or chemists and you, and you book directly. So you have a marketing director or a marketing manager or you have an agency um, that you pay a, a certain amount to who book the campaigns and do your strategy for you. And it is a little bit of art and science out of home. 
like most media channels, you know, there is that f- famous quote that says, you know, if I knew which 50% of my advertising worked, I'd be a rich person um, because you never know which what is going to actually take off, you know, what's going to go viral, what's going to pe- what slogan people are going to remember. So if, you know, usually you buy advertising based on a strategy. And what we're finding now is that campaigns are being booked at a shorter shorter time period. You know, in, in the olden days, it used to be, you know, you were thinking about your campaign three months in advance um, and, you know, calling up and booking things and, and putting them in, in the diary. Whereas now you can even buy a campaign programmatically where our members are serving at, you know, serving spots. Um, so, so the way a campaign could be bought programmatically, for example, is you could be sumo salads, right? Uh, and you know that there is very high traffic between the bottom of the, your shopping centre um, and the ground floor of your shopping centre and going down the food court and there is a sign there. And you know that if you have an ad there between 12 and 2, your sales go up 40% because you remind people that you're there. Everyone's going, oh, I've never been to this food court. You know, what am I going to eat? I don't want to eat something greasy. And you go sumo salads, right? So we know that um, out-of-home works really well as the last point of contact. So you might already know that and you might see that that ad spot or a series of ad spots are there to be bought programmatically between two, 12 and 2. So you're, the, the computer, you've given the computer those parameters. Our members have given the, their computer the parameters and what they call our DSPs and SSPs. And there you go, sumo salads are suddenly buying a campaign at the bottom of the, the stairs at Chadston Shopping Centre in Melbourne. I love it. Yeah. I mean, maybe you can't disclose prices. Maybe I can because I kind of know. But some of the premium sites, like just to, okay, context. I was in America in San Francisco and there's a famous highway called the 101 that goes down to Palo Alto. Well, it goes a fair way <laughs> all the way to LA as well, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, there's this um, stretch all the way to the San Francisco airport, SFO, and there's just a lot of billboards. And it's kind of like... Oh, yeah you've made it if your software brand is on one of these billboards because just the amount of traffic that goes to, you know, it's sort of like that legitimacy or credibility builder. So I know those goes for tens of thousands of dollars and normally it's booked oh, a yeah. month. I know the premium sites in yeah. Brisbane were like $40,000 back when I was, you know, probably 10 years ago booking spots there. So like we're talking kind of decent money, correct? Yeah, yeah. We're, a, we're a $1 billion industry in Australia when we're doing well. It's not cheap and nasty anymore. It's not a a bill poster. It's a legitimate corporate progressive organisation that has a very large audience to serve advertisers who don't actually anymore are able to get to those large audiences, right? You know, I remember 10 years ago, if you got 1 million people on a Sunday night on TV, that was a bad night. Whereas now when you get 1 million people, you're writing a press release about it, right? We get to 12.5 million Australians every day 
and not only once but maybe two or three times because we're habitual and we tend to i don't know whether you did that today but i came to work the same way i always come to work right i will go home the same way i always go home i will do that at least four or five times a week and i am so sad and lonely that i have counted the number of outdoor signs between here work and home and there's 21 of them because i live in the inner city so you're getting to you know a a woman who's a ceo uh, who lives in the inner city with the ability to tell me the same thing over and over again. And, you know, from kind of marketing terms, you know that it takes 13 touch points. So, you know, if I'm wanting to go to see something at the opera house um, and I see that twice, I go, oh, when I get home, I have to book those tickets, you know, for the Sydney Festival. I must do that before everything sells out. So I think that it's, um, and, and, you know, what's happening again more and more is um, people are taking photos of it. You know, I see people at bus stops taking photos. I think the new Apple can can go straight to the website and store it. Like if you have a website address, QR codes, who knew that they would come back into fashion? I know. I thought they were just only big in China. Now they're like a great way to measure some yeah. of this outdoor um which brings me to some cool examples so we're kind of talking about value here and and your argument here which is a valid one is like that it reaches people who wouldn't normally be reached and it's credible and then the reach is massive if you do it well um i see people spending like a thousand dollars a day on on fake impressions on, on digital sometimes and, and i'm like well you know you could just stop doing that for 20 days and get a billboard and probably have more effect but one one ad that i've seen a couple of times now because they're using outdoor um is canva um so now that they got a 50 something billion dollar valuation as a software company and i saw them at the airport um in one of the overhead sort of programmatic uh, signs that was cycling through three yep. creatives i saw them at a bus shelter i saw them at another thing and it was all you know design with canva and i was like oh wow they've, they've done a big buy recently that was interesting to me so yeah even the yeah. digital companies are kind of getting into outdoor and it's and it makes sense right if you're in cyberspace um, you are talking one-to-one, -one. yeah? You're, you're assuming that my computer will serve you something that will take you to my site. But if you actually want to create that brand fame, you can't do that on the internet unless it goes viral, right? So you have to depend on the undependable. That's very rare, my ad. It used to be easier. Yeah. Now it's almost yeah. impossible. So it's much easier to actually do old-fashioned. You know, like we haven't been doing this stuff for centuries, waiting for the internet to arrive so we could do things differently. Like we are still programmed behaviorally. My needs are exactly the same as my grandmother's, right? They haven't really changed. I still want to buy lipstick. I still want to look nice. I still want to buy jewellery. I just buy different stuff to her, right? Um, and the way I buy it is is exactly the same way. I see something, I like it, I go to the shop, I buy it. Now I buy it on the internet occasionally. I'm not a big internet shopper because I've been disappointed many a time. Um, so I think that what we're seeing, and this is, this is a really interesting point, is we're seeing a lot of cyber companies. So there's, you know, big com companies um, showing the rate of big com, you know, using that immediacy and showing their big com rate going up. Um, there are, there are uh, Sharesies had this huge campaign 
for you know those tiny little internet companies where you can start a share portfolio oh, with. Oh yes, 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 yes. They've 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 started. There are internet banks using out of home. Uber Eats does it really well. Uber Eats does out of home. I mean, it does all of its advertising really well, but it does out of home particularly well. And Apple, well. I think we're an early adopter of that. Too, Apple, yeah. Apple do out of home really well. So I, I think Google uh, Play used to do a lot of out of home advertising. So I think what you're seeing is that that brand fame. You know, you have to be at the top of the funnel. 12 and a half million people need to see you on a regular basis with with your brand value, you know, design with Canva um, there to reinforce that message. I, I remember talking to the previous marketing director of Spotify. When Spotify first came to Australia, I think there were three people in their office and they bought this massive campaign and we we said to her wow that was a really big campaign you know for a very it was a, a challenger brand because at that stage i think pandora were here and pandora were a bigger brand than wow, spotify yeah, I, I, I hardly remember pandora but at the time it was like oh yeah. they, they were beating spotify and spotify was a ch- the yeah, cool challenger they were, so yeah so spotify were were the challenger brand and what what she said to me was I wanted to make us look bigger than we actually were. So what I did was I bought a really big campaign that that made us look big. You know, again, that thing about, you know, I was listening to a neuroscientist today who was saying why Zoom meetings are so tiring is because our brains are, are programmed to look at the big head and to work out whether I'm going to either procreate with you or whether you're going to kill me right? So am I safe or are we going to have which babies? One, which like one is it right now? Because we're kind of on a video conference. Well, it's neither <laughs> because there's not enough input coming from you sure. to let my brain know. So it's constantly now, so from a brain fatigue point of view, it's constantly going, oh my God, what do I do? Who Who is this? Is it a foe? Is it a friend? How do I I deal with it, which is why at the end of a Zoom, well, this is what the neuroscientist was saying anyway. I've, I found it fascinating. So I find it really fascinating thinking about how people react to stuff. So I think if you see something big, you go, whoa, that's a big brand. So I've heard this over and over again, especially from banks, you know, as banks started to reduce their branches in suburbs. They bought big billboards in that suburb to say, hey, we're still here. We own real estate. It's about owning the real estate. So out of home is really great for that kind of brand fame. And it has always been. You know, it's the same with the poster in Pompeii, right? It's always been really good for that. But I think what we're doing now um, is that with digital and with our new neuro impact measure, we're allowing people to be more clear about where, where they buy on the funnel. So when I'm when I'm talking about sumo, you know, you can come further down the funnel. So if you already know sumo salads, then it's easy to go to do that call to action. But you need to know about sumo salads. I was talking to someone recently from the Labour Party who was saying, oh, you know, what should we be doing? You know, we bought this campaign last year and we put 
the face of our candidates on billboards and I, and, and we also bought shopping centres. And I said to, to them, you know, if I was buying your campaign, what I would be doing is putting your brand message on the billboards because really what billboards are seen by is not necessarily the electorate in your area but by passing traffic. So if, you know, Labor's going to make it all right, Labor's going to fix climate change, then put it up there, put your brand message up there and in the shopping centres and on the bus shelters in your area, start putting your candidates' faces because that is going to resonate with the electorate. You know, you're going to make that candidate familiar. So it's not rocket science. Like when I say it, it it, it makes sense. But, you know, people are, um, are very mystified by media. And I really, if there was one thing that I would do is I would make media literacy a lot better in schools. Rather than blaming the media, I would actually increase media literacy. So people just understand how to read what they've been given. Interesting. And, and like, uh, I think there's an interesting quip, like the medium is the message sometimes. I think you alluded to the fact that yeah. you know, there's a certain other thing that's communicated other than just the spot, but like the maybe it's a bit scarce, it's a bit harder to get like a big billboard in, in a centre location. So only, therefore, by association, only big brands will be there. So therefore, that is elevated above and beyond what would normally be the case. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I like that sort of uh, hyper-local sort of local support and then a, a bigger, grander message in that sort of pyramid. Yeah, and it's that geo-targeting, you know, and, and digital's allowed us to do that better where, where we can broadcast, but we can also narrowcast. You know, we can be on a particular lift, in on a particular escalator, or we can be broadcasting to all of Australia. And I and And that's one of the things that I think makes it really accessible like you can be a small mum and dad um, legal firm or a news agent and you can buy ads in your local area um, or you can be Telstra you know both have equal access to the to the medium to get their products into the you know market. what the, the thing that's really interesting is like some sometimes outdoor like you alluded to this before but it can um there's certain avenues we can target people that are really hard to target for example like ceos such as yourself or like um sometimes I've, I've noticed some people do campaigns inside like a financial tower where there's a lot of financial organizations and very high net worth individuals very busy individuals you know they're not going to be spending time um you know browsing facebook every night you know so you there can be a really a good opportunity if you're really smart with your creative and the way you you purchase yeah. I think what what we know, I mean, again, this is so kind of basic that sometimes I feel a bit embarrassed talking about it. But what we know is that everyone, nine out of 10 Australians, leave home every day. You can guarantee that, except in a pandemic, probably less people left home every day, but probably went for longer walks. But let's say nine out of 10 people leave every day. You can't say that nine out of 10 people are watching television. So I don't have a TV because I stream um, and I stream on my laptop because, you know, I don't have the kind of leisure of sitting home watching TV at night. Um, I do binge, though, so on my laptop. So I I stream. I listen to ABC radio. Um, I don't anymore read a newspaper. I used to. Maybe on the weekend I might go online and read the newspaper. So how do you actually get to me? You know, how do you get your... I'm, I'm the most ignorant person when it comes to advertising, even though I work in it, 
because I don't consume media, advertising media in that way. And, and I bet there are a lot of people like me. I don't think I'm the exception to the rule by any means. Well, no, it's the same with like press. For example, I was sitting at a cafe the other day and it was, a, you know, it's probably a gentleman in his, you know, 60s or 70s, um, obviously, you know, isn't working or I think was rich enough not to have to work or maybe he's an executive and was just at a cafe. But he was reading, you know, one of the tabloid newspapers and flicking through like 30 pages. I'm like, well, and... Uh, you know, that, that media buyer can be really good for select cohorts. Um, I think sometimes there's a, oh, that medium is dead, that channel is dead, now everything's this and this is the new thing and when people are swapping. And I think once you get down to the metrics, uh, and I want to talk to you about this, um, you know, you, you make better decisions. So um, how, how do yeah. we make, yeah. how do we measure outdoor? Um, because, you know, you put something up, that people are walking past it, but how do you know that's actually done something? And I think that's yeah. some of the biggest objections you may get with media buyers like this. Um, did it affect yeah. sales? Did it not? You know, um, so tell me about the measurement side of things. So I think that's a really pertinent question, and I, I don't have uh, an absolute answer for you. I still go back to that quote of, you know, 50% of of my advertising. And I think the way messaging works, as we all know, you know, it's behavioral change. Behavioral change takes more than one thing. So I would never um, talk about a campaign being only on out of home or only on TV or only on radio. I think um, unless you're geo-targeting in that narrow casting way, I would think that you would use um, a, a variety of means to get get to someone and out of home we know from econometric studies that we've done is a very good media multiplier so you reinforce the message and there's some tricks to it so if your if your brand has a slogan or you know with ing it's an orange background and your television ad has that then you make your out of home an orange background with that lion logo on the end you know there there's some basic tricks of repetition um so the way we measure out of home is um, from, a, from a media buyer's point of view is through the strategy. So if you say, I'm Spotify and I want to look big and I want to let people know that I'm in town, that I'm the new guy in town, the new woman in town, the new music streaming. So let's not be sexist, the new streaming service in town. So I would go, well, who am I targeting? And then you start talking to the companies based on that. So I'm sure Spotify also bought a radio campaign and probably bought a small TV campaign, but they put most of their money in out of home and they went, you know, we want to reach high income earners or medium income earners and students. How do we actually put this together? How do we get the eyeballs? So sometimes people want reach. They want to reach their demographics, so they want to reach 60% of those people. How can you give me a campaign for this amount of money that can reach 60% of the audience I want? And sometimes they might buy frequency, so I want to reach them once or I want to reach them five times. So, you know, it could be on that path to purchase. So I think it's, you know, that's why when we were talking about this earlier, I said it's a little bit of art and science. Sure. There's a little bit of art in how do you actually get people to remember and there's a little bit of science about how do you get people not to be annoyed by it 
Um, so, you know, my sister-in-law says to me, I love TV ads the first time I see them. The 20th time I see them, I really hate them. You know, so how do you kind of get that to happen in out of home? And there are some tricks. So, you know, we've done a lot of work in neuroscience. So we know that if a message just changes a little bit each day on digital, uh, you get more uplift. So if you had uh, Daycon, I think was the 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 um, operator that was buying the ads. So if Daycon had the temperature changing and a little slogan like cool and breezy today, um, it got an uplift in terms of people glancing at that and getting it through. So the beauty of out of home, strength and weakness, um, is that it's a glance medium. There is no content. Um, that's changing slightly. In, in office towers, for example, you might get weather, you might get news, and then you might get an ad. But generally, out of home is a glance medium. What we're finding is that when people are outdoors, they're more alert. Going back to my theory about, you know, your head, what is your head on my screen for? You know, people are more alert. We're looking for the mammoth, right? We're looking to see what is the danger. Very different to when we're at home. We're much more passive. Um, you're not looking over your shoulder. You're not listening for cars. So we're more alert. And in that uh, sense of alertness, what happens is that we store uh, memory and emotion. So we're storing things. And what we've done with the neuro impact factor is we've looked at the medium, not at the messages, but at the medium, and said, are people actually taking these messages in? And the medium is delivering that. So people get that at a glance and they go, oh, yeah, I, I love the Sydney Festival. I want to buy tickets to it. I'm going to store that for when I get home. Um, and apparently in neuroscience, sorry if I'm banging on about neuroscience, but it's, it's, um, they're my rock stars, neuroscientists. I'm constantly interested in the fact that we want to go to Mars, but we haven't as yet gone into our brains. Um, the neuro, what the neuroscientists say is that memory isn't chronological, which is why, you know, when you talk to the police, they'll say someone who, there'll be 20 people seeing the same accident and you'll get 20 different stories. Because the way we store memory is for future use. So we store the things that are useful, that we think, may, our brain thinks, may be useful for us in the future. So if you're in the market for a new car, you're storing car ads. If you're in the market to buy Bitcom or you're thinking about Bitcom, you will see that Bitcom ad. If you're in the market for a new design tool, you'll see the Canva ad or you're interested or you work in this area. So out of home, you know, again, as I say, you know, humans, we love signs. We know how to read signs. Um, so it's kind of inbuilt in us. Um, so what we measure is how many humans are likely to go past it, how many humans are likely to see it. So we, so there's a lot of conversation at the moment in marketing and media about attention. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, just because the TV's on in the lounge room, 
or just because there's a banner ad on your internet thing, did you actually pay attention to it? Or is it just wallpaper and background noise? Were you even in the room? Or is the billboard um, too high in the building and you don't look up because you're looking on the street yep. level? And yeah. Yep, exactly. So how? So what we do is we say we know that 100,000 people drive down this road all the time. But out of those 100,000, how many people are likely to see that? So we use some factors to 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 talk about who will pay attention to this ad? And it will be, you know, this many pedestrians, this many passengers, this many bicyclists. So we reduce that number. So if we start with 100,000, we put these factors in, it could be 60,000 people, right, who are paying attention to this ad. So we invented something called LTS, Likelihood to See, 12 years ago when we launched Move. So it's really interesting to see everyone talking about attention. Yeah, like- in the At last the moment, two years, we're going, ah, well, it's been around for a while. We did that 12 years ago. We're so ahead of the trend. <laughs> you, you're and hipsters. It's have... the glasses too. Oh, you know? You've got the hipster glasses on. Yeah, it's all happening. I know. I, don't, I think I'm a bit tall to be a hipster, but, you know, hipster in my brain. Um, so what we did was we, we, we got attention 10 years ago, 12 years ago. What we're now doing is we're going beyond attention to impact. So it's not just that you saw it or you were likely to see it. Did it have an impact? Was it effective? And what we are with the neuro impact factor, that's exactly what we did. And it's undeniable, right? It's science. It's someone measuring the brain. It's not me asking you a question like, did you see my ad? Uh, It's not you having to fill in a diary or fill in a questionnaire And you go, oh, yeah, I saw it somewhere. Was it on a billboard or was it the TV ad or was it the radio ad? It is actually measuring your brain. So how far are we away from, I'm not sure if you watch these two movies, but um, Minority Report. Sorry, what's that? (laughs) Yeah, everyone talks about that. So Minority Report, you know, when you're walking down, there's that scene and they're scanning the eyeballs and then it changes, it personalizes the message of, of that outdoor ad to you know um, whatever his name was i can't remember tom cruise's character tom yeah, cruise. yeah um and then in blade runner there's also maybe the next iteration of that blade runner 2020 uh where it's walking down yeah. a walkway and this like 3d hologram comes out and you know yeah. talks to it like how are we sort of there yet are we going there what's the future do you think well look we're there on the internet we're there on the internet look at what's happening on the internet i think that's that's far more scary because it's far more insidious you know, if you look at Cambridge Analytics, that was incredibly insidious. And if you look at what, you know, purportedly the Russians did in the in the Trump election, it's happening. Um, I, I used to think it was really funny that whenever I went on Facebook, I got served ads for men over 50 who were Christian. And I wondered what, what I'd done to deserve that being served to me. But, you know, you, we are served ads now on the internet and nobody bats an eyelid about that i think we should be really worried about um that kind of target marketing will it happen in out of home um and i i suppose it it depends very much on where we go with privacy and how people deal with this stuff and what sort of world we will create for ourselves i don't think so Um, because, you know, the moment you point out to people how insidious the internet is, you know, people are starting to do something about it, right? 
Um, so will that happen? I don't know. I don't know. Would I want it to happen? I wouldn't want it to happen. Um, will we get better at finding the right people at the right time? Yes. And I think that is more where we're headed. So we'll have more granular data about who is under that sign at 6pm to who is under that sign at 6am, who is at that near that in the vicinity of that airport at seven in the morning to who is at the vicinity at that airport at 11. I think that is more where we're headed. And I think that is a much easier thing to sell. Um, and it's a much easier thing because, you know, we all want to be targeted to get the goods and services we want, right? Um, I don't want to have to watch ads in order to get the goods and services that I want, but I, I, I want to see them. Like I want to know that the Sydney Festival program, I keep coming back to the same thing, but I want to know when that program is out so I don't miss out on by the time I book the shows are sold yeah. out. So I think people have this very uh, love-hate relationship with that advertising. You know, on the one hand, everyone goes, oh, I hate advertising. But as Adam Ferrier, who's a behavioural psychologist who works in advertising, says, everyone hates ads until their cat goes missing. It's one of my favourite quotes. It's true, yeah, right? Yeah, no, no. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. I, I've talked to him a tiny bit. Yeah, everyone hates advertising until they're in the market for the thing they actually need, I, I think is like sort of original. Yeah. He's done an iteration on that, but it's very true. And no one, the other thing is when you're measuring it, I do a lot of measurement with attribution and like no one ever wants to admit that an ad has influenced yeah. their purchase. So they'll pick everything else on your drop down list, you know, on your inquiry form, except an ad. It's like, oh, a friend told me about it, but like maybe the ad started the memory and then they talked to a friend and then yeah. that was the second or third thing so yeah. I, there's a lot of response bias that, that plays into that i think there's a lot of response bias and surveys and recall are really not a great way of finding it out which is why um i really love the neuroscience because it's undeniable proof it's about how does the brain put this in you know what is actually happening um am i paying attention uh, and, and yeah, people are paying attention, yeah, you know, at, but they're doing it in a glance. And that's the, that's the, the wonderful thing. It's not very long. It just takes a split second, a nanosecond, and it's in there. Um, so, you know, because I'm always working with roadside, with government on roadside, you know, I'm going, no, people aren't, you know, people are um, self-regulate very well. Humans self-regulate very well. Um, you know, no one wants to take their eye off the road in order to have a car crash. And they know that if they do that, they will. So people self-regulate incredibly well and we get information into our brains. You know, there are more synapses in our brains than there are stars in the universe. Well, that's big because then someone said there's more grains of sand. No, there's more stars in the universe than there is grains of sand on Earth. And there's a lot of grains of sand. So that's that's a huge number it's a massive number and they're firing continuously so you know this this is why i kind of go oh we're looking at the stars but look in here uh well you know speaking of that tying back to dom Perignon, there's that famous quote that was attributed like um come quickly i'm drinking the stars 
funnily enough, that's just that's a, a false statement <laughs> that that they wrap the story oh, around. Yeah, you. and also, okay, again, marketers, but LVMH do this very well. Um, they the monk Dom Perignon, <laughs> which we we're talking about before, which the champagne gets its name, um, didn't really invent modern champagne. Um, at the time, champagne was a fault in the winemaking process. It was a secondary fermentation that created the fizzy wine, and that was a very much no-no. Um, and it exploded oh, the wow. barrels um, that they stored the wine in. So um, at the time, this process was refined through a second fermentation with extra sugar uh, in England, in, in uh, a completely different country. So really, the English invented modern champagne. Oh, the English inf- invented yes. it, not the French. Well, the Eng- I, I've also been told that English invented uh, cuisine and not the French. So well, that English had a tradition of saucy cuisine before the French and the French stole it from the English. Well, of so. course, the French would never admit to champagne not being, you know, um, invented there. But, yeah, there's a really interesting book by, um, oh, I forget his name. I think it's Andrew. Uh, I know his Instagram handle. I forget his name. But um, it's called Bursting the Bubble. And it's a really interesting book about right. champagne, um, which could... Are you an aficionado? Uh, yeah, I, I dabble. So, uh, yes. You dabble. What's your favorite champagne? <laughs> Ooh, that's a hard question. Well, coming back to Dom Perignon, the, probably the first real uh, champagne I tasted, apart from some sips at, you know, Moet Chandon at um, Christmases when I was younger, was um, Dom Perignon 1996 when I was living in Canada and someone ordered it at a, at a fancy bar that I was working at. And wow. it's customary over there to, to share with the server, which was me, the, the dregs of the last little bit of the bottle to improve prove the knowledge of the wait staff so that next time someone asks oh, what does this taste like you've actually tasted it oh so, what how altruistic yeah, is that i didn't know that but i mean you know you tip your weight uh, your wait staff there too so this is like really a hidden custom that i think maybe isn't expressed here or with the younger generation perhaps but um it was really cool so i would get to taste oh that's really cool bits. i like yeah, but it. i was like ruined from a very young age because that was one of the best vintages of the last i don't know 100 years and that was my first and i just remember drinking going this is like liquid apple pie danish like the best apple glazed danish you've ever tasted in your life liquefied oh. and it was just like oh my god it was like a revelation and your frame of reference completely changes like it did with you perhaps then you go back to something else and you're like oh that's disgusting um so it kind of yeah. ruined me i want to know because you've probably seen a lot of campaign i want to, to know how you do outdoor right and some good examples of perhaps some brands that done it really well and then on the flip side how do you make rookie errors and do it really badly so that perhaps people listening to today can go, okay, well, I won't do those things and I'll try and emulate some of these really good examples. So anything off the top of your head that um, comes to mind? Doing outdoor right is keeping it simple, um, understanding that it's a glance and understanding that you don't need to give people a lot of information. You know, it's that thing about how the brain if you take away the the vowels and you just leave the consonants, people people can still read a sentence. It takes you seconds to get your mind in, but you can actually read a whole sentence. So I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make in out of home is they put too much information um, because they don't feel confident. So choose a really great image. So the campaign that I thought this year was really, really good, was during the Olympics, go for gold, gold for avocado, you know, the avocado campaign. And it was using the green and gold. You know, it was very contextually relevant. That works. 
um, and they just had Australian avocados, you know, and that's all they had. Go for the green and gold, Australian avocados with an image of, of an avocado, and they had it everywhere. Um, and I thought that that was just really, really clever. Um, so it doesn't have to be like Apple. You know, for me, my favourite out-of-home campaign was the iPod Oh, the silhouette. That was, that was the best, wasn't it? It was just... That, for me, is... It just had a logo you know, and it had a small little yeah. word. I think it was the iPod, I-P-O-D. So it was like yeah. four letters and just so distinctive, wasn't it, anywhere in the world? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was really cool. It was a really cool campaign of its time. Um, I think you, what what people also forget is how big things are. So, you know, using the right colours. My most hated outdoor ad, but I think was very, very successful because they used the right colours, was Longer Lasting Sex on a yellow Oh, this is AMI. I wanted to yeah. ask you about this because they got yeah. sort of fined for, for this, I think. Well, it was yeah. around the messaging or some of the legality, but it would just look so old school, didn't it? Like it oh, was... it was so old school, but yeah. you, you remember it, right? It was ugly as all batshit, but what the reason why I'm talking about it is yellow and red worked really well. Like saying the thing worked really, really well. So imagine if you had a good thing and you said the thing, it would work really well. So typography, I think, works really well. The other thing that works incredibly well in Out of Home is humour and the double entendre. But you have to use the double entendre in a way that won't offend people. You know, there's a lot of outrage culture now, so you have to be very careful about Mm -hmm. what you say. But people really uh, forgive humour. And I'm trying to think of one that comes to mind, but unfortunately I don't have that kind of brain that stores that stuff. But I know that I've had a giggle at a few things that I've seen. And what what better in the outdoor space than to put a smile on your face? I mean, I've, I've seen some good examples. I think, you know, you see on social media a lot. I know in advertising circles, um, everyone always has a screenshot or a really funny billboard that they have. So it, I think it has that sort of reverence or that sort of cheekiness yeah. that, um, that maybe other channels yeah. can't get away with. Um, yeah, so I, I suppose there, there, are, there are three rules. You know, one is keep it simple. Less is more. So, you know... What Coco Chanel says is before you walk out the door, take one thing off. Um, Do that with your outdoor. You know, you don't need to say it all in outdoor. Uh, Trust in the intelligence of the viewer. Uh, Use very good contrasting colours and designers notoriously make everything small, make it big. So the viewing distance, you know, you... People tend to look long distance rather than short distance. So don't design it for when you hit your face in it. Design it for, you know, a a kilometre away. Like, you know, make your logo big. Make the thing that you're wanting people to know big. Sydney Festival, on now. Program, out now. (laughs) 
Well, I think the same principles can be for like some of the d display or banner ads on these websites. You know, these people shove so much text in there. You're just like, let's have logo, yeah. hero image, and then like two words, which is a call yeah. to action. That's yeah. all you need. Yeah, you stop putting all this yeah. like, you know, paragraph text in I think in there. a picture paints a thousand words. So if you can paint your product with a picture, always good, especially if you're selling champagne. You know, remember those really great Chandon ads with um, – all the little with bubbles, the little bubbles like the and the girl decals. with the it wasn't a girl it was that amazing actress what's she was in a gold dress yeah, i think it was, it was the gold and dress. it was like merged into the you know yeah, it was yeah. just it was and it just had Chandon. Yeah, and that that's was it. all it had and it had the gold and it had the bubbles and it was i do remember that and i was geeking out going that's a really that's good a ad. really really, really good ad yeah. so there are you know keep it simple use visual cues i mean there wasn't a bottle of champagne in that ad there wasn't a glass. There was just a bubble and someone in a gold dress just looking happy, um, which is, you know, the feeling that you have, right, when you drink great champagne, as, mm -hmm. we, as we have talked about throughout <laughs> this conversation. Um, and, and get to the point, like, you know, be direct. Um, say, you know, what it, it's, I think it was the, the guy who set up Ogilvy and Mather said, you know, if you can't say it in a poster, if you can't get your message out in a poster, you're not a good creative. Um, so get it out in a poster and always, you know, I've had so many battles with creatives with my own campaigns and where I've just gone, no, it's too subtle. Like why would you not make that bigger and put some key lines around those white words so that they pop up? pop out you know pop it i love it oh, that's cool okay well i've just got i think it was a really cool conversation um and you can weave some more into into this but i've got five questions okay. that i ask everybody so um the first one is uh what is a book that you're reading right now or just recently read which really resonates with you or has changed your way of thinking or is specifically about this topic that you would recommend other people read um so i'm reading at the moment very slowly a book called perfect motion about this guy who went walking um, to he he thought he was doing it for one reason, but it turned out that he went he he'd lost his brother in an accident, and he just started he realized that he was going through the grief. Um, and I'm like, I'm um, kind of at that stage like... where I'm at the end of my career, and I never get enough time for me. You know, there's just I'm the person who gets out of you know everyone gets something out of me and I don't get anything out of me so I'm kind of looking forward to having me time and it's a really inspirational book about how the the motion of walking you know something really simple can just activate your brain so I'm really interested in the way the mind and body works and what the brain does and so it's the perfect book because it's a little bit about neuroscience and it's a little bit about, I don't know, zenning out and being with yourself. So thinking about the future. It's a bit deep, I love that. Isn't I mean, it? No, no, not really. Um, I, I gel with that because I have some of the best um, thoughts, creative thoughts, when I'm doing something mundane, like just yeah. walking somewhere else. And your subconscious ticks over, um, you know, as long as you're not looking at a phone yeah. or whatever. And you come up with some of the best copy ideas yeah. or creative ideas that I've ever come across. So. Um, they just reminded me of uh, Forrest Gump a bit, you know, where he just yes. started jogging and then yes. jogged and jogged. Yes, this guy is a bit more, a uh, bit less movie, a bit more kind of in 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 the real world. So I've got this idea for when I re retire 
or you know when I stop working like I'm working now to do an A to Z of Sydney like to walk every suburb from A to Z and then write about all of the good things that you can find in that suburb and how you get mm. to it and I'm a bit of a foodie so I want to find you know all of the weird delis and the little shops and what people do and I want to spend like two or three weeks in a suburb just walking its streets. I also steal flowers so I always wander around with secateurs so I'll get little clippings, get my coffee hit, get my weird food stuff done and hopefully walk to clear my brain and start the next phase of my life. Well, that's interesting. It's very vogue because I, on YouTube, there are these people who are the biggest accounts right now are doing these walking tours of their own cities and doing exactly that, finding little alleyways and little areas that you wouldn't normally see. And it was kind of like, um, it's like tourism, but from a local yeah, perspective. Yeah, I've, I've so thought about that for years. Up. I've wanted to set up that website, but I think I'm just going to do it for me and maybe have a blog. Nice. Well, that's a great segue because my next question is like, what's your favorite website resource or go-to website around maybe outdoor or around this topic or, or marketing? Um, you know, I think that my favorite website is probably the BBC um, site because it's got all of the things. Like it's got, you can geek out on the science. It's got recipes, that and probably the New York Times. Um, I, I think that too many people live in the advertising world for too long and you need to get out of it and be in the real world. So um, um, I actually generate my ideas by uh, looking at how the world is developing. So I'm really, I'm interested in politics, I'm interested in the arts. Um, advertising isn't something that I'm obsessive about. Um, I know a lot about it but my influences don't come from advertising. My influences come from outside of it. So, yeah, the New York Times and the BBC would be the two. And the ABC site is probably where I spend most of my time. But I don't actually, to be perfectly honest, I sound like, you know, I'm on websites all the time. I'm not. And usually when I'm on it, it's because I'm looking for a recipe because don't have a lot of time. <laughs> nice i like it um what about then tech we've we've had a we've both had a fair tech troubles during this interview <laughs> my battery died or something your mouse died um tech can be hardware or software um what's your sort of favorite piece of tech that you can't do without on a um, daily basis? audible audible Ooh, very nice. audible so a bit of a podcaster or like for, for books I, actually. um yeah. you know it's that walking thing again um, so I walk and I cook and I garden and I find mm. that I love having Audible because now ever since I started wearing glasses, which was in my 50s, I find I used to love reading in bed, but I find because I've got multifocals, it's really hard to concentrate on a book because I'm never sure which focal lens yep. I've got. Um, so I read a lot and I podcast a lot and I use Audible. I use Audible every day. Ooh, you podcast a lot. Okay, well, that's good. That's very topical. Um, now, what about um, a, maybe there's a meme or a post or quote or something. I, I know you've sort of come up with that 50% of advertising. We don't know what it does quote. Um, is there anything else that or a meme or a quote that, makes you laugh really hard every time because it's so true about 
about your industry? Um, yes, I the the quote that I play in my head, which was something that there are two quotes, right, that I saw in the seventies that were graffiti that play in my head all the time. One's a little bit rude, um, so it so when whenever you know we can't do anything, I go. If they sent one man to the moon, why didn't they send them all? When I get angry with the way the world is going, um, so that's a bit rude because I do like men. Um, well, the council police will be all. all yeah, over yeah. For so that. maybe you should cut that out. The 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 quote that I use a lot in my head to giggle at is "Help the paranoids are after me," um, <laughs> because I think you know we live in this world where there is so much kind of outrage culture. And yet there's so much, so many things that we need to really be outraged about um, that mm. I kind of go, it's like, you know, the lunatics are running the asylum sometimes and help the paranoids are after me. I better get out of here. And I think that is the, one of the key roles of the arts that I think is somewhat underappreciated is like it, it challenges those notions and gives meaning to things and challenges orthodoxy um, that you know, wouldn't, if it wasn't around, it'd be a worse oh, place for The it, world so. would be an awful yeah. place without it. Mm. Yes. Okay. And um, what about, it's about you now. Um, so it's about what you want to promote. Uh, I know some things have come out in the wash in this, but, you know, um, what do you want to get across? What, what are you working on? What do you want people to follow and how to people contact you if they're really interested yeah. in, in to, to I suppose saying. one of the things that, you know, having worked in this industry for 12 years and I've been here for 12 years because I've really loved it um, and I kind of feel a bit bit embarrassed really because when I, when I first started the job 12 years ago, I'd come from the arts and government and when I was interviewed by, you know, many of the trade press, I was a bit like, oh, yes, I'm not sure that there'll be enough content in it to keep me, you know, interested for a long time and it's been the most content-rich job that I've had. It's the most humbling job that I've had and it's the job where I've learnt the most. And I suppose the principle that I've learnt is about being evidence-based so all of the stuff that we do, you know, yes, of course, you know, it's advertising, so it's got some hyperbole and some spin to it. Mm -hmm. But I think at the reason why Out of Home has grown and the reason why we are doing as well as we're doing is because it's all based on evidence. You know, so I'm very, very interested in science and in evidence and it being proportional. So... You know, I'm, I'm always saying to people, you know, keep it proportional. Like there isn't one answer is never the right answer. It's, it's always a mix of things. So think about your audience. Think about who you want to reach and how you want to reach. And it's that thing about, you know, you're better off doing the work at the beginning where you, where you have the vision, you think about it, you tear it up, you throw it away, you do 16 different creatives than getting to the outcome and then having to fix it. Like retrofitting stuff is so much harder than doing it at the beginning and kind of, you know, ask people questions, like ask why. <laughs> um, and I think all of the work that I do here is based on me saying, so why would this be interesting to John James, you know? why am I doing this? Am I just doing this to blow smoke? Um, 
is it, you know, is it just a smokescreen or is it real? So I feel like what Out of Home has done in the last 12 years, and it's a team of people, you know, I've had a really, really supportive board. Um, We've had this real vision about, you know, building measurement tools, building metrics, trying to prove the why. So, you know, we all knew that there was an uplift in digital, that there was an X factor. So we went and we proved what that X factor was, you know. Um, and and that is what I think um, we need to do more of in the world yeah. and in out of home. No, I like it. I, I think the same comes for, for any of the traditional media. Like um, there's people who are like, a traditional or digital and like really i mean realistically if you get down to your audience and looking at how they consume media it's little bits of everything and that changes depending on the product and the sector and the exact audience you're targeting so it's never ever that black no, and white it's never black and white and it's never like you know uh, you know i don't read a newspaper but that guy that 60 year old guy at the coffee shop was reading a newspaper you know people come to to stuff in, in various ways and you can't use yourself as a sample of one. And that's why I think, you know, the reason why I think out of home and I used to buy out of home for this reason is everyone goes outside at some stage and it's cradle to grave. So if you get me at the bus stop, then you get me on the side of the bus, then you get me on a billboard then you get me in a shopping centre. You know, if you get me on my various journeys during the day at the lift, you know, you you are communicating with me. So think about the journeys that people go on and what you want to communicate with them and keep it simple if you're using out of home. No, I love it. That's so good. And obviously you've, you've talked about the Outdoor Media Association or uh, what's the website called again? www.oma.org.au. Perfect. And what if people really want to chat with you? Everybody has different modes of communication. Obviously you're a very busy lady, um, but if someone wanted to connect and maybe approach you, what's your favourite form of... Uh, probably uh, professionally LinkedIn, I think is, you know, you and I just had a conversation on LinkedIn. Um because I think I find that my emails is a burgeoning burden. You know, just things just drop in and, and it depends yeah. on, on where you're at. But LinkedIn, you probably go to a couple of times a day just to, to make sure that, you know, you're seeing what other people are doing. So for me, LinkedIn's the best way. Or you know what? Old fashioned, pick up the phone. You know what? That is one of the best ways to contact people uh, that nobody... Because everyone's like the text generation, they want to actually talk to someone's face on the phone. It's one of the best ways to sell. Um, that's very underrated yeah, right now. So pick yeah, up I'm the a phone. big fan of that. People are so surprised, yeah. or you know, flowers and champagne always works for me. Well, some are on their way to you. <laughs> so thank you for taking your time out. So, Sorry, John, um, that was like... so cheesy, wasn't it? What a cheesy <laughs> way to end a great conversation. <laughs> really nice to talk to you, John James. Thank you very yeah. much. It was a, it was really, really a great conversation Thanks. in a very busy day that I was going, oh, my God, am I going to be able to do this? And it's been such a pleasure. You've been the highlight oh, of Oh, thank you day. so much. That's, that's really so kind. Okay, you. well, I want to talk to you again soon. So uh, enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. So there you have it, a delve into the world of outdoor from someone who is at the forefront of the movement. I hope you enjoyed that episode, which is one of our channel-specific episodes. And we have many more of these channel episodes to come. We've done two others already, including programmatic display with Keaton and podcasting with Tim. 
both of which are in season one. There's many more of these to come and thanks again for following. As always, if you have any feedback or comments, make sure you DM me on LinkedIn or tag me on Twitter. A dose of John is my Twitter handle and look for John James from Melbourne in the black and white suit on LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram with the handle of Champagne Society, especially if you're into food and wine. Remember, if you liked this episode, give this podcast a review, a like, follow, share it with a colleague, help spread the word. There's also other people just like you that probably want to hear this episode as well. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening.